Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 306 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Mary Rickert, author of the short story collection You Have Never Been Here. She's also the author of two previous short story collections, Map of Dreams and Holiday, as well as the novel The Memory Garden. She's worked as a kindergarten teacher, a barista, and a Disneyland balloon vendor, and her writing has received the Crawford Award, the World Fantasy Award, and the Shirley Jackson Award. And now, here's our interview with Mary Rickert. All right, so we're here with Mary Rickert. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, so it says in your bio that you used to work as a Disneyland balloon vendor. So tell us about that. Yes. I worked in Disneyland. Um, I was in the concession department. So each day I would go to work and they'd uh, assign me to a different place. Sometimes I sold balloons. Sometimes I sold popcorn. And sometimes I sold ice cream in various locations around the park. And uh, But my favorite was selling the balloons, you know, walking around with the giant bouquet of balloons. Um, though they didn't let me do it too often because I was always losing balloons. <laughs> they were just floating. I don't I don't understand to this day how it happened, but um, I didn't get to do that too often. But it was my favorite. People were really friendly. I enjoyed being friendly to them. Um, it was a nice place to work. So and that- I liked the people watching. I would have to say that was a really good job for me for people watching as a writer. Are there any people that you watched that stand out in your mind? I remember, um, I don't remember the name of this. I don't even know if it's called the disease or not, but I always remember waiting on a little boy who suffered from that condition where you age prematurely. And um, I, I just remember him. I had not come across that before. And you know, I do actually, all these years later, remember certain people. I remember a couple that had just gotten engaged and were just so happy to share it with me. And hmm. and it was just a lovely moment. And I remember I was another little boy. And when he, I think he gave me the money and I gave him the change and I called him sir. And you would have thought, it was the most magical thing that happened to him in Disneyland. So just little moments like that. Do you remember which balloons those people bought? Well, the balloons I sold were just different colors, oh. you know, round balloons, not character balloons. And I do remember a young boy, probably, you know, junior high, who really wanted a balloon and didn't have the money and just wanted me to give him a balloon. And I said, well, I really can't do that, but I have money. And so I showed him, you know, that I was paying for the balloon and and took it out of, you know, my little purse or whatever I had and put it in the pocket for paying and gave him the balloon. And um, and then he was in love with me. <laughs> <laughs> And I remember that. He he was very enchanted. (laughs) Kindness matters. I've learned that in all my odd little jobs that I used to have. You know, looking someone in the eyes, boy, that can really change someone's 
few minutes of interaction, actually feeling like they're being seen, really talking to people and really just responding to them made a big difference. And I enjoyed that experience. So how did you end up leaving that job? Well, you know, how did I end up leaving that job? I think it was um, first the way they used to do it. First, I was hired for the summer. And then I was offered uh, to stay on. But my memory is that they couldn't, couldn't guarantee enough hours. So I was, um, I was, I think I was 18 or 19, and I was supporting myself, and I had to know that I was going to get enough hours. So I left that, and I'm not sure if I went into it. I think I might have gone into a preschool after that. Well, yeah. So when you say that you that you had all these different little jobs, what were some of those other little jobs that you've done? Let's see. I worked, well, I worked as a coffee shop when coffee shops came around, but I started out working in a Pioneer Chicken in California, uh, which is, you know, kind of like a fast food place. I don't even know if they still have them anymore. That was my first job out of high school. Um, I worked as a photographer's assistant, supposedly. I'm very um, not mechanically confident or really competent in any way. And I have, I, I, I confess to having a, maybe a weird intelligence. I think, you know, I can write and I can think about things and I have an intelligence that sometimes I would get myself hired for things that then I just, just, I don't know, just couldn't do. You know, I think as I got older, I realized I had some dyslexia and, um, you know, the part of the brain that does maps and uh, any of that kind of thinking, just it's very hard for me. So I was sort of this photographer's assistant, um, but he became really unhappy with me because I put some fluid in the wrong part of a machine. And so I had a lot of things like that happen and I worked in a bookstore um, and then I, at some point in all of this, I worked in the preschools in California, and that was a real match for me. I really enjoyed working with children, and I went from preschool to preschool until eventually I was hired uh, to work as a kindergarten teacher in a private school for gifted children in California, and I stayed there for like 10 years. And then you left that because you wanted to pursue writing, is that right? You know, it is. I couldn't have, I wouldn't have been able to explain it at the time. I knew I wanted to pursue writing and I knew I wasn't really doing it. But I, you know, even when I quit, the woman I worked for said, well, but you could still write and work as a teacher. And for sure I could have. And it, I really enjoyed teaching and I was in a very nice situation for myself. But I think what some part of Something in me knew is that, you know, I had to toughen up a little bit <laughs> and I I had to prioritize the writing. But there was some part of me that was just a little too settled at that point. And even though I had all the time and I told people I wrote and, you know, I kind of wrote, I, I fussed around with poetry and I, but I just didn't have the drive to do it. And I, and I also just don't think I had 
you know, just enough metal to do it. And so uh, I quit my job as a teacher, and then uh, things did become much more difficult for me, which, you know, wasn't great, but I see that I I learned in, during those years, well, this is going to sound kind of silly, but I feel like it's true that, 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 well, we live obviously in these lives of our bodies and, and through the experiences, I learned how to construct good sentences <laughs> or better sentences and how to construct narrative by living my own life story. You say in the, um, the acknowledgements, you say, during my years as an apprentice writer, I often struggled financially. Could you talk about what that was like? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm sure it isn't any any more um, extreme than others have gone through, and certainly not any more than, you know, some people are born into. Uh, but it was challenging. You know, it was challenging, and it was also probably good for me to see, you know, because I kept, I didn't have, um, even when I was a kindergarten teacher, I didn't have a college degree. And so when I well, I quit that job. I was, I just wasn't lucky again. You know, I just kept finding sort of minimum wage, wage paying um, jobs and, you know, no insurance um, and just finding out how sort of lonely that kind of existence can be and how challenging it can be. You know, people don't really understand. I remember, I almost feel, I'm a little embarrassed to talk about this because I do want to make clear that I, I understand that people struggle and, and people come from much more difficult circumstances. And, um, but this is my experience, you know. So it was odd to me to say to somebody, oh, well, um, I don't have food, and no, I don't know that TV show because, of course, I don't have a TV. And so many people would offer me their TVs, <laughs> you know, but not really understand the food thing. And and as I say, it was my responsibility. I was not very good at putting my life together during that time, but I got through it. You know, and I and I did, as I said, I, I feel like I learned during that period about how a person can say one thing and the other person hears something else. I feel I have a little bit more understanding about um, financial struggles that people experience their entire lives and about cultural differences. You know, just everybody sort of has a baseline of understanding and to realize even now that I have that too, you know, rooted in experience, rooted in reading, rooted in what I know of the world, and just to always understand that there's experience beyond that baseline, that someone might be saying something to me or a character might be going through, and I should try to be aware that it's hidden but there. So then when did you first start having success as a writer? Hmm. I'm trying to decide how 
to describe success. I um, I did enjoy my time in poetry, and I did get some poetry published, and I felt some success with that experience. At a certain point, I realized, well, that I felt that I'd fairly quickly reached my limitations in poetry. But when I took all my poems out and looked at them, I saw that a lot of them had stories in them. And I decided to start writing short stories. And then, I don't know, I think it took, you know, 10 years before I got one published. There were maybe a few small, I mean, I know there were a few small, 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 small literary journals, you know, that paid with copies of the the journal the story was in, and sometimes those never even appeared. Um, And then, so, so the first publication that I felt was, you know, really a significant publication and a success in that regard was the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and getting a story published there. After that, I felt like everything was different, you know. I and at the time, people I didn't know very many people. I mean, I wasn't a member of the community. I wasn't aware of conventions and all of that. And um, but at a certain point, when I did get to know people, I understood that the con- the ideas at the time were, you know, sent to the different magazines and and develop a wide audience. But I was just happy to send to magazine of fantasy <laughs> and science fiction, and Gordon liked what I was doing and I was I was really happy with that experience and connecting with readers and I felt successful then uh, you know until then I had times where I didn't feel successful again but it it meant a lot to me to start being published well it's funny because you know I and most of my friends spent 15 years trying to sell to Gordon Van Gelder at the magazine of fantasy and science fiction without success so yeah you know. Did, did, so did you have any awareness at the time that this was uh, such a difficult thing or you're just kind of like, oh, that's nice. This magazine bought my story. Well, I thought all publishing was really difficult. And I thought that I I had reached a point where I really became uncertain about what I was doing. And um, then I I discovered the anthology, The Year's Best Fantasy and Horror at my local library. And I just started checking them out. They, it used to be published by Tor um, with Terry Windling and Ellen Datlow as editors. So I just kept checking them out and checking them out. And I was like, well, this is what I'm writing. You know, because for years I was sending things to people who said, well, this is kind of odd. <laughs> you know, So, um, and then I looked through those anthologies and I saw, and the things that I'm writing seem to be published by this particular magazine. So I sent it out. And while it was out, I was thinking, you know, if that story comes back from there, I don't know what I'm going to do, not in any you know dramatic <laughs> way, but in the way of like, maybe this isn't the right thing for me. Maybe I should start thinking of something else because I feel like that's the place for my work. And um, so I was 
I was thrilled and I, I didn't know of its standing. I didn't know the science fiction fantasy as a community. I didn't know of all that. But for me personally, it was a very, very big deal. And I was I was quite appreciative of it. <laughs> well, right. And then Gordon went on to publish a number of your stories to the extent that you actually dedicated this this collection to him. Yes. He published quite a few of my stories, actually. And, uh, and well, and back to that first story, which I'm not a great speller. And I don't think I was, I think I was even worse then because I wasn't aware that I wasn't a great speller. And the fact that he looked through all of that and still saw the story and, and, you know, read it again and said, well, there really is something here, you know, even if her spelling isn't very good. And so that meant a lot to me, too, you know, that he he looked again and read it. And, and um, I really appreciated that. So, yeah, he is somebody whose selection of my work really made a big difference in my life. Yeah, and so then also in the acknowledgments, you say, um, thank you as well to the Vermont College of Fine Arts for accepting me into the MFA program in spite of the deficits I brought to my application. So where in the chronology did you do that and, and what what deficits are you, you know, to? I'm sorry. Well, the biggest deficit was I never did get a bachelor's. So I decided uh, really just a few years ago that maybe I think we're talking like under five years ago. I decided that I would really like to teach writing and I, because again, you know, I had short stories published, but I, you know, I just felt like I had, I had this longing. I had more that I wanted to give and, um, and I've, I, I enjoyed my years as a kindergarten teacher and I felt really almost a calling that I would like to teach writing. Well, I didn't really think anybody would hire me for that if I didn't have at least a, an MFA. So I told a friend, you know, I'm going to I'm going to finish up my bachelor's and then I'm going to apply for MFA programs. And my friend who has enormous faith in me, so we'll just apply to the MFA programs. So I I started looking and in a lot of the programs it's sort of small print and hidden there usually was a comment saying, you know, we sometimes accept people who don't have a bachelor's. So I applied uh, to Vermont College of Fine Arts, and I was thrilled to get into the program, you know. And part of the application process was a critical paper. Well, I had no idea how to do a critical paper. So I just sent in what was basically kind of a, a book report. And and they accepted me, and I really really appreciated that. And it was um, it also was a life changing event for me. You know, so part of that program is that uh, for the two years, and it's a low residency program. So I stayed at home, and I would send packets to mentors, and then go on campus every six months or so. And part of the program is that I would do critical papers with each packet and then the third semester was a longer critical paper um, and the fourth semester is a lecture along with doing the creative work 
something about doing that critical paperwork and that longer critical piece um, gave me a confidence in my thinking that I hadn't had before. And so I said it to somebody that was like, you know, it was as though I was dragging my this this shadow around my whole life. And I did this MFA program and I just, I slipped that on and it was like, oh, I don't have to drag that around anymore. And um, that confidence that I gained from doing that work, I can see directly applied to working on, on novels, which was another backing up a little bit. I wanted to teach and also... I had given up trying to write novels because I just had been trying to do it for years and years and I couldn't figure it out. So when I went into the program, though, I had started writing something that I thought might be a novel. And going through that program, I really felt like it helped me find the novel voice that I hadn't been able to find on my own, which was um, also really meaningful to me. So I graduated, and I, I never did get a job teaching writing. I applied for some things, um, but I do private mentoring, and I really enjoy that. And I was able to write a novel, which I hadn't been able to do before. Uh, so that private mentoring, is that something if people go to your website that they can um, email you about it, or is it limited to people that you know or something? Oh, people can email me about it. I used, I think I have some, I, my website. I have to really get back to my website and uh, revamp that. But I think there's something on there about contacting me personally, just emailing me with, you know, a link, and then I respond. So I do novels and short stories. I enjoy that very much, and I consider it an honor. No, that's great. And actually, I was kind of curious, speaking of writing a novel, one of the stories in this book, it's called The Mothers of Boorisville, is much, much longer than the rest. It's about 100 pages long. And I was curious if that yeah. was sort of, was that a warm up to writing a novel or? I think it was. When I first wrote that, it was actually novel length, uh, for sure. But it was what happened was what I used to do is I would write and I'd be, well, this is too short. And then I would just sort of shove stuff into it to try to make it novel length. Hmm. And all my attempts at novels ended up feeling like that, like kind of disjointed, kind of monstrous and not in a good way. And Mothers of Warsville was one of those. It was novel length when I finished it. And... um and it, there was something wrong with that. And then I decided to just go the other direction, and I shortened it to novella length, and I wrote three connected novellas, The Mothers of Warsville, something called Pretty Brutal, and a third one called Five Days in Stone. And my idea was that I would try to publish those three connected novellas as a novel. And... Um, that didn't work. But some point in there, Liz Garinsky saw it. I think I might have sent Tor the three connected novellas. And she really liked The Mothers of Wars, though. She and Irene Gallo had seen it and both really liked it. And then even that took like a couple years. 
I think it took like a couple of years and they came back. I mean, they'd seen it, liked it, if I'm remembering this right, for some reason kind of passed on it and then came back to me later and said, you know, I'd really like to look at that again. So they published the Mothers of Voresville on Tor.com online. And that's where it got published first. But yes, it was a novel attempt. Do you want to say a little bit more about just the, the premise of the story? It's sort of a kind of Rosemary's Baby sort of thing. Well, you know, I, I had actually forgotten until, and I don't even know how to pronounce this word, Waco, Waco. Oh, Waco. The Branch, the branch Davidians, Waco. Branch Davidian compound. Um, I was influenced by that. Uh, I wrote it many, 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 many years later, and it was kind of a confluence of um, influences. But I know that was in there, and it was this, you know, idea of uh, people being held in a building and and trying to have the well, the premise of the story is that these women all start getting pregnant um, from the same man, and they start giving birth to babies that have wings, and they all think this is a secret until they end up in this farmhouse together and discover that they share this. During that time in the farmhouse together, they come to various conclusions about these winged babies as being good or evil. And in the meantime, the the surrounding community and the uh, law enforcement comes to believe that the babies are evil. And so the premise of the story really is what do you do? <laughs> What's the, you know, the old problem, what to do about evil and what to do with the evil that that we produce as humans? Well, there's a line in the story where it says, um, we do not know what our children will grow into. No mother can know that. That really struck me. It seems like that's kind of what the story is about is that um, that you're gonna that you love your children even though you don't know who right. they really are and what they're really going to become. Yes. So the but there is a very clear point in the story where at least some of these babies do something that's just undeniably horrific, and so it also kind of goes with that idea of. We're not sure what's going to happen, <laughs> but we, we're we not really taking responsibility for what we've already produced. And not just as, uh, you know, women or mothers, but I really, I think of it as as a society, as a story about the obligations of evil in society. And I'm thinking about this a lot lately, how, you know, the things that we, even the things that we consider quite good can become very fetid in the wrong circumstances. You know, there's there's nothing wrong. I mean, it's quite beautiful and profound to forgive until that forgiveness becomes an excuse for allowing evil to continue. That sort of thinking. 
Well, when you're talking about the obligations of mothers, I think it's really interesting to look at this story alongside another story in this collection, which is called Anyway, where the premise is basically that through magic, a woman whose son is going off to war, she can guarantee that he's going to survive. But if she were to sacrifice him, it would end wars forever. And yeah. does she have an obligation to sacrifice her own son? It seems like kind of she does, I mean, to me. But how do you see that? I see it as complicated. It's so easy, you know, to make these decisions in, in theory, uh, you know, not not dismissing what seems to you to be an obvious choice. You know, I understand that. Um, but in reality, it, when it comes, when, when any of these forces come close to home, people seem to struggle with them quite a bit. And I suppose I would too, you know, it's, it's so, some things are so clear at a distance, <laughs> but, um, when it's in your own house and your own family, it can become very painful and, and very difficult to choose. Well, no, I absolutely, I mean, I absolutely agree that it would be a horrible, emotionally, it would be a horrible decision to have to make. Um, but it's just when you're, if, I don't know, from a utilitarian perspective or something, if you're weighing the lives of everyone who will ever die in all future wars against one life. Um, yeah. You know, do you, it, it seems, I don't know, it seems like it's hard to, um, yeah, uh, just analyzing that uh, dispassionately, you know, you, you would have an obligation to do that. Well, yeah. How do you take the human out of being human? You know, dispassionately, it does seem really, really obvious. And I and I think there are some people who have the strength to make such choices and probably have, you know, in times of war and and in times that aren't of war, you know, that are just like at the edge of great discomfort and great um political change in the world you know it's but i just i agree with you that just passionately the choice is really obvious mm -hmm. it's just not so easy i think for mothers or fathers but the story focuses on the mothers uh or the mother in that story yeah what i think i was part oh go ahead no no go ahead Oh, I was just going to say, if I'm remembering right, I was influenced at the time by news stories I was reading about how many how many women had supported uh, going to war in Iraq because the feeling, the at least the quotes I was reading in articles at the time was, "Let's do it over there. You know, it'll be better if we do it over there." And um, I want my community to be safe and I want my children to be safe. And so let's let's go to war. But a lot of the people who were voting that way weren't the ones who are sending their children to war because, again, it's it's comes into a class issue. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you're talking about children, I mean, one that's one thing that really struck me about these stories is that you seem to have such a good handle on what it's like to be a kid in a way that I was reading the stories and it was kind of reminding me of things that I'd sort of forgotten about. 
So, for example, in the story of the Christmas witch, that you have these experiences like you're you you come home, and you're expecting your parents to be there, and they're they're just not there for whatever reason. They're running late or something. And you just start crying because like I have no idea what to do without my parents oh. here. Oh. Yeah. And then just the experience also of um, hearing an adult say something, and you just repeat it, not even really knowing what it even means, and you get punished for that because people are like, "Oh, that's a horrible thing to say." Uh, you know, all these experiences yeah. probably most most everyone has and i had just sort of forgotten about them and bringing this uh, reading the story just brought it back to me so vividly i don't know if i could do it anymore you know i think that was all those years working with children because i was a kindergarten teacher for 10 years and then i was a nanny and i worked in preschools before that so i think i did used to have a pretty close understanding of children and their lives and some concern about that um Mm, I now I seem to gravitate more towards old woman. <laughs> um, but I think so. What do you because there's this, this there's actually a lot of discussion of this in the chambered fruit where you talk about children not playing the piano or kicking soccer balls. They just kind of sit in front of the television and um, they don't play and they just uh, you know are uh, hypnotized by the electronic devices and stuff. Do you uh, do you still feel that that's kind of a problem that's going on? know if it's I don't know if it is a problem that's going on because where I live now in Wisconsin in this little town I see children playing all the time I mean children are on their bicycles and running down the streets and but the community I lived in when I wrote that it did seem like children were I just never saw children the streets were empty the parks were empty and that was like a long time ago um I think that probably what parents struggle with is finding some balance for, between the, you know, the screen time and the time on the grass. And, but I do think it's really important to get some time just having the experience of, you know, for children, I, I think it's important to learn if you take your hand and you make a big circle in the air, you're creating, you know, you're, you're doing something to the space around you and you're actually taking up space as opposed to making, a, you know, a little circle on a screen. I think it's an important thing about having the experience of, of a body that, um, should be preserved, but I do understand that we've entered, you know, an age where children have games that are are different from the games I had, of course, but I do think it's really important to learn that because I think that that extends to the emotional life, to understand just how things work on a physical plane before at least so that there's equal value to that as there is to the virtual plane. What was that community you lived in before where there were no kids on the street? I lived in upstate New York. And do you think it's still like that there now? Mm. Maybe it's just so cold outside. Nobody goes outside. (laughs) I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't know. It was when, you know, when when computers 
first came on the scene and the cell phones, everything seemed, I don't know, you know, in my mind, it all sort of appeared at the same time, which I know isn't correct. But remember, there was that period of time where all the conversations were about it. Everything was about this new technical thing and about and then people would be showing come look at this and I'll show you how this works and you know I just thought it was so boring and it just seemed like everybody was a little over enchanted by it for quite a while and now to me it seems like it's evened out it's it's plumbing you know everybody has it it works um, where it's really nice to have. Um, there's great advantages to it, but oh, we don't have to talk about it all the time and we don't have to show each other, you know, look at what my machine can do, look what my toilet does. You know, we just kind of have an acceptance of it that I actually really appreciate and seem to be working through some balance with it. But there was that period of time where it was just taking over all interactions. Well, you know, if you're, I don't know, it sounds like you don't spend a lot of time on the internet. And so I don't know if you're aware of this, but people on the internet are awful. So uh... <gasps> I know they are. <laughs> I do. I actually spend probably more time than it sounds like, but people, you know, the, yes. And I would say that, that now even I've run into a few times where I've been misunderstood and I was talking about you know baseline well right now it seems like everybody just assumes that the each other all the people are angry you know the baseline seems to be well you're annoyed even when you're not you know and I did learn that younger people tend to find exclamation marks they think it's angry, where to me, exclamation marks were always joyful. So, um, yeah, but I have found that, that people are are quite horrible to each other on, on a lot of places on the internet. Well, if, if you're writing in all caps, people are going to think that, that you're angry. So I just want to... Yes. <laughs> I try to stay away from all caps. Hmm. Well, so you have had good interactions, though, with people on Right Way, because you say in your uh, in the book, um, over the years, I've been happy to meet either in person or through email many people who have taken the time to tell me they enjoyed something I wrote. These exchanges are some of the highlights of my life. Yes. So nice. So nice. You know, um, I have met people, you know, that I've never even met, but, you know, through Facebook or whatnot that are just just lovely people, um, and I would say in in my Facebook feed is actually quite lovely. I don't have a lot of angry people. There's people posting art, and there's people posting poetry. There was one woman who was posting a lot of quite beautiful um, forms of song that I really enjoyed. And then um, people who have reached out to me as a writer, you know, who read something of mine that they liked. I mean, this isn't happening, you know, like on a massive scale or anything, but I appreciate it so much. And I've had personally, I've mostly had 
lovely exchanges. And anything that hasn't been lovely has really just, for me, been misunderstandings that we've been able to work through. I I know other people have had horrible experiences, and I, I haven't had that. I mean, when you think about uh, fan mail and stuff like that, are there any particular letters that stand out in your mind where someone says, oh, I really connected with this story or it made a big change in my life or anything like that? Yeah. I, well, for my novel, which is about forgiveness, um, a young man r- wrote to me and wrote a very, very lovely several-page letter about that. I don't think I'm betraying too much confidence since I'm not saying his name. It meant a lot to me. He said he he had found a way to understand about forgiveness that he hadn't experienced before and how it impacted his life. And that, that meant a lot to me. And then mostly other than that, like short notes. I know I got a, a nice note from a man in Australia who had read the story Bread and Bombs, which isn't in this collection, um, and how much that had moved him. So, you know, things like that, that it's just really nice to hear as a writer. Uh, Well, I mean, also in this book, you talk about your um, friends understanding your need for solitude. And I was just curious about that. Like how much solitude do um, do you feel like you need? I need a lot of solitude. <laughs> you know, I do. I need, even um, when my husband and I go on vacation and we just go up north and we stay in a small town in northern Wisconsin. And I've noticed over the years that it's just pleasant. We're just pleasant. We're, we're not, neither of us are busy people and we have relaxing days. And at a certain point in the day, I say, well, I'm going to go back to the room, you know, and I go back to our little room and I I play my music and I just read. And I, even though it's beautiful outside or I could sit in some cafe, I need to be alone for at least a couple hours. And then, uh, you know, I don't really, I don't enjoy parties for the most part. They kind of baffle me. And, um most of the things that people seem to enjoy socializing, I don't. I do like, you know, one-on-one talks with a friend occasionally. (laughs) Um, But especially I've noticed with novel writing that I seem to really need to burrow in. And then even, I'm not writing all day. I'm not writing, you know, 10-hour days. But even when I'm finished, you know, if I put in four or five hours, then I need to not talk to anyone or or um, or even be around people. You know, I just kind of need to close off. And I had one sort of beginning friendship that she just she just didn't understand that and i don't know how to you know i don't know how to make somebody feel better about it it's just the way it is i try to be really clear that that's who i am and it's not a reflection of anything lacking in the other person um so but i guess some people find it odd <laughs> so i really enjoy the the friends i have who are just really supportive of who I am. 
Well, yeah, and my family, too. You mentioned a couple of writers, um, Sophia Samatar and Christopher Barzak and Karen Joy Fowler. Are those uh, people you keep in touch with? I keep in touch with Chris, Christopher Barzak. I used to, I mean, he and I used to be quite the pen pals, uh, email back and forth. And then as, as our lives get busier, we go through waves, you know, but, um, and Sophia and I, we never really did um, keep in touch a lot or even very much, but I, I enjoyed her company and um and i really like her work as as all of them and karen joy fowler i'm not i'm not sure <laughs> i i know she wrote a blurb for my novel which i very much appreciated but i don't but we don't really know each other uh-huh. and i was also just kind of curious um you write a lot about crime and um and sort of disturbing topics like that i was just curious if you um are you a big fan of uh, true crime books and shows or things or like how do you um do you research crime stuff at all i used to i really i mean ever since i was young i've been fascinated oh fascinated it's too pretty of a word i've been curious about why people behave the way they do and what effect that has on on humanity and so i do read true crime though not as much lately i picked something up from the library i don't even remember what it was a few weeks ago i really you know really well written true crime almost always really talks about place so well um and place almost becomes one of the characters in a lot of true crime which i find really interesting um and i i'll go back and forth you know i might be looking at the tv and i'll be like no i don't want to i don't want to watch any any of that you know but if I do just start watching, I'm usually quite compelled. And I'll, you know, I'll watch something and I'll be like, oh, I, you know, I really want this to end differently, but it, it doesn't. I just, um, I've been lucky. I really haven't experienced any of these horrible things. And I think sometimes people think maybe I had, but um, I haven't. But I've just always been really curious and concerned about the way people behave. And I guess half the time I'm trying to change the ending. There but was it the, doesn't work. <laughs> there was this thing on Netflix in the last year or two. It was called Making a Murderer. And my girlfriend yeah. watched that and got just totally captivated by it. And then we watched a whole bunch of other true crime things subsequently. And, um, you know, you do get really, you enjoy watching it, but as one of the characters in one of these stories says, she sort of thinks she's angry about the thought of people enjoying themselves, um, you know, reading about her story and her suffering. I was just curious how you feel about, do you ever feel, I don't know, guilty about enjoying true crime stories or anything like that? Yeah, I, I think it's, um, I think it's 
important to investigate those feelings. A person might say, uh, you know, I really enjoyed that. And then might look at it more closely and say, well, actually, you know, that really wasn't enjoyment, you know. Um, I think sometimes we just say the word that we associate with the medium. You know, you watch TV, you enjoy it, or it's a movie, I enjoy it. But I don't think most people are actually enjoying it. But I, I think there's, but but compelled by it. and um, and it's it you know it speaks to something real about the human experience and the i think we have a need for that that we want to and we i think it's not bad to want to investigate evil and to do it in an adult mature way where we're not just saying, you know, you're going to be able to recognize evil because it it doesn't look like you. You know, well, yeah, a lot of times it does. And I think that there's this thing in our society that kind of does make people feel like, oh, if, if you're watching that and, and eating your popcorn at the same time, you know, you you are evil. But then what happens is we have a society where people are not even able, some people are not even able to recognize evil or unkindness or cruelty because it's coming in the shape of charisma or beauty or attraction. And so, yeah, I have had times where I'm like, oh, God, what is this? Why am I doing that? Why am I watching this? You know, but I think when I really check myself, you know, I I feel like it's it's not a bad thing to do, and I think it can even be an important thing to do. Okay, so running a little short on time here, we did have a um, listener question for you on Facebook from Jonathan Graham. He says, ask her about Small Beer Press. It's quickly becoming my favorite imprint for speculative short fiction. Um, so could you just talk about your experience with Small Beer Press? Well, Small Beer Press is great. You know, as Jonathan Graham said, it's um, it's it's known. People who know what, they're, what Small Beer Press is doing seem to be... Um, looking for particular kinds of work and a kind of quality that you can find there. Um, Gavin and Kelly are, you know, very supportive. They worked really closely with me and really um, good editors, kind people, and have given a lot to the, the field. Did they approach you about doing this book or did you approach them? You know, I know for years I wanted to publish with small beer. And then um, I just remember, and I don't go to conventions very often, but I was at a convention and uh, I remember I was, you know, I met Gavin for tea. And I, I think that's where we decided that we would do this. But I, they knew I wanted to publish with them because <laughs> I I had tried for years too, 
So I'm not quite sure how the details of this happened. But uh, I would say that they knew I was very much wanted to work with them. Was it difficult picking which stories you were going to include or was it kind of now you, you, you knew which ones you wanted to include? You know, it was difficult. I had had a, a plan to do more news stories than I did do. And what happened was during that period of time, my mother died and she was, you know, elderly and it wasn't a terrible, long, lingering death. But it still um, it still took me off my feet for a while. And I was quite unnerved. And, you know, I was having trouble writing the stories I had committed to. So they were, they, um, Gavin and Kelly were very supportive. And I just turned, I just used one new story. But and so then when I started looking at what I wanted to do, um, I knew I saw something happening between stories that were about identity and about what it is to be human. And I knew that I wanted to have a, a, a feeling of that. And then once I decided that I was going to title it, You Have Never Been Here, which is based on one of the short story titles, then I knew, okay, this is what, you know, I know people don't usually read short story collections in order, but if they did read it in order, I wanted it to be an experience of that idea. Who are you? What does it mean to be human? Uh-huh. Um, and then I was also just kind of curious to ask you, in one of these stories, there is a um, a character or some of the characters have a writing group. It's actually it's a memoir writing group in the story. Uh, and it's yeah. not the it's not the um, most positive portrayal of a, a writing group. Um, it talks about, um, you know, it kind of turns into you, you say it turns more into sort of a th- group therapy session than a writing workshop. And, yeah. and in another story, there is a, a workshop that sort of uh, excludes people if they write fantasy. And I was just kind of curious what your experience have you have you ever joined a writer's workshop or what do you think sort of the pitfalls of that might be? I have been involved in workshops. I was in workshops with poetry for years. And then when I was doing the MFA program, part of being the on, on campus was going to a workshop. Um, and I've gone to some workshops. They're not, in general, they're not a match for me. I usually had to work through um the things that were being said, the hurt, you know, I never went to a mean workshop. I never did. I never went to a place where I thought people were just being encouraged to be aggressive and tear things apart. And yet I never really came away with much that I found helpful. But I I know that that what I've decided is that Every writer needs to decide for herself, you know, what works and what doesn't work. And then to be develop a lot of confidence in that decision. And yet sometimes like when I did the MFA, there's just no way. It's like, okay, you got to go to workshop, you know, try to model for myself what I hoped an experience would be like um, for others. And even then, I'm sure I failed. You know, one of the things I remember most is uh, another student in a different workshop saying to me, well, you know, they workshopped my story today, 
and usually they're really good, but today they weren't good. <laughs> and I thought, well, yeah, you know, maybe that's true, or maybe it's just that feeling of it seems like, oh, we're really on to something, you know, when we're talking about someone else's work, but then when it's your own work being talked about, as I said, for some people, it's profoundly helpful. For me, it was usually just a lot of material that I had to work through to gain my footing again. Have you had that experience of people being hostile or dismissive because you write fantasy? I have never had that. I mean, I've had, let me back up a little. I've never had that experience in workshops. I have run into writing teachers who don't know as much about the subject as they think they do, you know, who who might be dismissive before they've even read any of the, the stuff. And I just don't, I don't mean just my own material. I mean, have ideas about genre writing in general, but haven't really read it. So I, you know, I don't know how a person can, can as an adult be that way, but, but I've been really fortunate. I've had, uh, almost a gift in my life of wonderful teachers and supportive teachers. I haven't really ever run into anyone who knew my work who was dismissive. Well, that's certainly been my experience with people who are dismissive of fantasy and science fiction. In 99% of the time, they've never actually read any. And I'm firmly convinced that if they read it, they would actually like it. I think so. You know, I think it's work. I think you have to look around and, and find who speaks to you. It's the same thing with poetry. You know, there's so much poetry that for a lot of people, it's just too much work to find, you know, the the writer that they go, wow, I really connect to that. But I think that I think people need to give it a try. And then I think also, as somebody who writes, I feel fantasy. Some people sometimes say it's science fiction, but I think my work is fantasy. Um, I think it's important for me to pick up, you know, a romance novel, to pick up, um, you know, everything and give it a chance. I'm like, oh, you know, this writer's really popular. Re why? There's something that's speaking to readers, and I'm not going to just say that those readers are stupid. You know, there's something there that has a great deal of meaning. And so, yeah, I've read some things where I'm like, wow, I just don't, you know, I don't get this on a sentence level. I don't get this on a lot of levels. But there's a human connection going on, and this writer was able to create that nothing to be dismissed. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we're pretty much out of time. Do you have just any final thoughts or any other projects you're working on that you want to mention? Um, well, I'm working on a current novel, but and then I also have a short story coming out in the Echoes, the Saga Anthology of Ghost Stories, edited by Ellen Datwell, on my short stories called The Shooter. And so that should be coming out this year. And so what's that story about, The Shooter? 
well, it's about school shootings. And it, I wrote it months before the one in Florida. I mean, probably six months before that. Um, I The challenge for me, I wanted to write something about that for years. And the challenge for me was to find a way to write that uh, something about that topic that I hope speaks to it without being um, a violence in itself to be read. So, you know, I hope I did that. That was what I was trying to do is to speak to a subject that was really important to me and to create an activist voice in fiction without harming somebody who reads it. And that's why I decided to put the use the title I did. I was like, well, there it is. It's kind of clear where we're going with this. Well, it's interesting you talk about an activist voice when the, the Parkland shooting you mentioned has sort of inspired a level of activism that certainly I've never seen before in my lifetime. Yeah, I think, and I think, I believe very strongly that writers can be activists within within their fiction. And um, I have tried to do that in much of my work. And I, it's a very, it's, I actually believe um, everybody can be activists within their work and to decide to live in the, the way they believe and to create that in in their own realities. And so for me as a writer, you know, that to me is my one of my tasks is to speak on an activist level um, and to try to do it well. <laughs> Well, no, I think that's a great thought and a great note to end on. And so that story you just mentioned, it's called Shooter, you said, and it's going to be in this anthology called Echoes, right? Edited by Ellen Datlow. And everyone yeah. else, also I'll go check out the short story collection that we've been talking about today. It's called You Have Never Been Here. And the author is Mary Rickert. And so, Mary, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, David. And thank you to your listeners. And thank you for everything you do to support fiction. Oh, thank you. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Mary Rickert for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Katie Fulfer, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com to learn more about your host, Visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.